Now, normally on Forever Blue on the podcast, it's all about a team of invited guests talking about various different topics. But this week's edition of the Forever Blue podcast is a little bit different uh, because I chatted to Andy Morrison, the former skipper who led the team out of the third tier of English football and was such a, a dynamic leader at the time. He has a fascinating story, full of ups and downs, and is seen as a charismatic part of City's history. Here's his story. I hope you enjoy it. And it's thanks, of course, to my current sponsor, Hot Click Marketing of Manchester. They're based in Manchester. They're a local company. They're the UK's leading PPC management agency. And uh, they understand your advertising needs and businesses. They're certified by Premier Google and Bing Partners. And we're delighted to have them on board. Enjoy Andy Morrison. Now, I want to say as well, thank you very much to Holiday Inn, where this is being recorded, which is at Central Park in Manchester, near the stadium, for being our host. So, Andy, um, what a career you had, um, certainly for City, and you are adored, I think it's fair to say. You are loved by City fans as a great leader and as a captain. But I want to find out how you've got to where you've got to, because you've had some life, haven't you, really? Um, tell us about... Uh, the, let's go back to the beginning, um, to begin with, and where did you grow up, and, and what sort of youth did you have? Well, I I, I was born in Inverness, and um, and then I lived about a hundred miles up from Inverness, right on the far tip of Scotland on the northwest coast, Kinloch Burby, a little fishing village, um, and you know left there when when I was eight, and we moved to Plymouth, which is the other you know the other part of. Great Britain. So you went from John O'Groats to Land's End practically, didn't you? Absolutely. <laughs> and, um, you know, and very quickly found that I had a, you know, a passion for football and, and enjoyed it. And it was, um, you know, became my life very, very quickly. Uh, my whole life revolved around football. You Can know. you remember much about Inverness? You were only eight when you left. Um, no, it was Kinloch Burby. Well, um, your area. Yeah, 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 I can. I was so fond of the place. You know, I had a real love and affinity with the area. Um, you know, in school and all my friends and that, so it was a real pull to actually leave. Um, I found it really tough, and um, but you know, you slipped in, and and then once football came along at the age of sort of ten, eleven, when I was at my junior school, and then I, I represented Plymouth and represented Devon, and then you realised that you know um, football's your life, and um, and I followed that path, and um, you know went to Southampton as a thirteen year old with uh, Shearer was there and. Um, Letizia was just above us, and um, had a you know a period of a few months there, um, but that didn't work out really. Um, it just wasn't my time, wasn't right, and um, ended up signing for Plymouth as a schoolboy, and um, you know followed Pl- Plymouth all through my childhood. Really, went went to many games, you know, as a kid, and um, signed as professional, and then made my debut for Plymouth, you know, which was what I always dreamed of doing. As a child, you know, all the way through my football, I wanted to play for Plymouth. You know, it was my dream, and and I and I managed to carry that out. At you know, I made my debut at seventeen at at um, Villa Park, and um, I can remember it like it was yesterday. You know, and uh, and all I did was kick as many people as I could, <laughs> <laughs> and I upset so many people. I can remember David Platt telling me to calm down, and um, so yeah, I, I certainly left an impression. I want to drill down a little bit, though, about you personally. So how come you're in Scotland? Were your parents Scottish? Yeah, my dad was, um, my dad was from the north, you know, the northwest. That's where he grew up. So, but he was in the Royal Marines, um, and he met my mum in Plymouth, where, where he was based. And, um, and then, obviously, they moved north. And then after a period up there, they moved back south, you know, and my dad was in the fishing industry, so he did, took the fishing boat from the northwest to the south. And um and carried on from there. So he's a tough fella. Yeah, my dad was yeah. My dad was you know, was was a was a, a Royal Marine and a fisherman and um yeah yeah he was a was a, a fairly tough. He was the he was the um, UK forces um, heavyweight boxing champion. So he was pretty tough. Did you have a big family? Is it just you, or have you got brothers and sisters? Um, I've actually um well there was four of us. You know I've lost my younger brother sort of. 15 years ago and then I recently lost my older brother just before Christmas so you know um, that was a big loss and you know it was a really tough time for the family and you know we're just coming through that now really coming into January you know it's been now just over I think it's been two months since Ian passed away and um, you know so yeah big loss and I miss him. Have you still got your parents? Yeah dad and mum are still going strong 
So, um, yeah, there's uh, and my, my younger brother, Graham, you know, works in Plymouth and still lives down there. What would have happened to you, do you think, if you hadn't become a footballer? I would have followed the family into the fishing industry. You know, I was, uh, I was actively working with my dad in my last year at school, you know. Um, it's nothing to be proud of, it's factual. You know, I had 15 days at school was my attendance in the last year at school. You know, I was always out on the fishing boat or, or, or whatever I was doing, working down on the fish quay with dad and that, you know, and I just sort of gave up on school and just played football. You know, I knew where I wanted to go. I knew what my dream was, was to get an apprenticeship with Plymouth. And so without the football, I would have followed the family into the fishing world, which is tough for somebody who suffered badly with seasickness. Really? (laughs) I I was horrendous. You know, I feel sick in the bath, you know. I, I really did suffer with seasickness, you know, so I, I may not have been able to um, go down that because it was that severe. You know. You've been out on a boat, presumably on a proper fishing trip then, because that, during those 15 days you were you were in school, you, you obviously spent a lot of time at sea. Yeah. Did, was it dangerous? I mean, it feels like it should be a very dangerous it is. It is, you know, you don't think of that at the time because that's the environment you work in, but... You know, it is it is a harsh environment, you know, and um, and I still think it's, I think as an industry, it's the it's the most dangerous and the biggest loss is still in the fishing industry, um, you know, with deaths and that. and But, you know, you didn't think about that at the time. You just, out your dad, out your brother fishing, you know, you just loved it. And uh, especially when the weather was, you know, was good and, uh, and the sea was calm. Um, but, yeah, it, you know, like I say, I was... I knew from a very early age that football was where I wanted to go. Do you know, I wasn't cut out like my brother and my father. Do you know, I'm totally different. Do you know, I like I don't know why why it matters. Like, but my dad and my brother had size eleven feet. You know, I got size eight, which was for football. Do you know, I've got little girly hands. They had shovels. Do you know, <laughs> and um, so I, I was always going to go kind of in a different and way. And yet, physically, physically, you look like you could be a fisherman. Yeah, aren't you? yeah, yeah, exactly. But. You know, not not the mentality. I, there's some great characteristics that you know I've taken from my father. You know, in and in, in the determination and the, and, and resolute and tough like. But you know, they the world they they live in like you know was 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 so brutal and harsh. And you know, you get up at half three in the morning and it's absolutely Baltic freezing out on on the sea like you know, and you're freezing and and they just do that day after day and they just get used to it and they're hardened to it. Um, you know, and so footballer, footballer's life was quite cushy. Have you got any stories from from your dad or from your adventures that you can tell us about the fishing days? I mean, out at sea and um, n- nothing, nothing really, um, because you know we there was always a structure to everything you do, so there was no really any any mishaps, you know. And uh, I did go down one evening. Um, I was waiting for my dad to come in. I was probably 15, probably 14 or 15, waiting for dad to come in from sea. And I just jumped onto one of the other boats at about midnight. He still wasn't there. I just went into the back of the boat and just fell asleep, just pulled like a, an old net over me, waiting for dad to come in from sea. And um, about three o'clock in the morning, I'm just leaving the heart. This boat's leaving the harbour and I'm sleeping in the back of the boat. <laughs> and I, I just woke up and shouted to the skipper who I knew. And he just said, what are you doing on the boat? You know, and then I had the boat to turn around and take me back in. And I was just sleeping, like, literally rough, waiting for Dad to come in from sea. And that's the only one that comes to mind, really. Um, but, yeah, I've got fond memories of that time. You know. Do you like fish? Love fish, yeah. Because I was going to say, if you didn't like fish, you'd have a real problem. I mean, my wife hates the smell of fish. Right. It is a strong odour, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You, you don't mind that at all, then, no, I take I love it. it. I love it. I love the smell of diesel. You know, even when you smell raw diesel it reminds me of, a, of my childhood you know and the boats and all that because that's how it was the feel, you know the, the vibrant atmosphere at sort of four o'clock in the morning it's just alive on the fish key because that's when the fish come so everybody's got to the buyers come in and then they've got to get it off to the shops and then go off to the restaurant so you know it's just like it's like the middle of uh Deansgate at sort of three o'clock in the afternoon at christmas that's what the fishing like at three o'clock four o'clock in the morning you know the key's just alive, and it's, there's an incredible atmosphere around there. And I used to love it, you know. And um, I think I've, I've, it was, you know, I, I spoke about it in my book when I actually landed the fish. I landed the fish with Dad, and Dad went off to sea, and I never got the key to the flat. So I had um, wellies and oil skins on, and I was actually playing in, in the first team at Plymouth. We were, <laughs> we were going to Brighton, 
and I got into the, and I just, there's nothing I could do, so I had to go in and see Malcolm Musgrove, the physio, at sort of eight o'clock in the morning in my wellies and oilskins and say, like, I've been landing the fish, I couldn't get into the house to get changed. And that evening, we travelled to Brighton, and I played for the first team for Plymouth away at Brighton after getting a tracksuit off Malcolm Musgrove. So I, was, uh, I don't think you find many players doing that these days. That environment that you grew up in with your dad, uh, with the military background, if you want to call it that, and then the fishing background, must have shaped your character. And we, us fans, look at you and think, hard man, leader. Is hard man leader what you think of yourself as? And does that come from that background, if that's how you think? Um, I, I certainly see myself as a leader. You know, as a captain, wherever I played, hard man, I don't, I don't know what a hard man is. You know, I played with some really tough players. You know, I, I, I've seen Richard Jobson have his head split open half a dozen times and just get up and carry on as if, you know, he's got a little scratch on his head. Is that hard? I've seen people, you know, go through recklessly on tackles and try and hurt somebody. Is that hard? I don't know what, what's hard, you know. Um, you just just play the game the way you saw it, you know. But I, I'd say, you know, being, I think I'm still the youngest person to captain Plymouth Argyle when I was 18. And then a captain Blackburn when I went there uh, in the reserves. So ca- captain at Blackpool, captain at Huddersfield, captain at City very soon. So you know, I never went in saying to the manager, to Joe, you know, I want to be the captain. I just, my, my, my character and the way I see football and life, you know, is I think those qualities came through. Do you know, I, 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 you can't say you have to win because um, that's impossible. You must want to win. You must want to win in everything you do in that environment. When if you're a sports person, a professional sportsman, the desire to win must be there. You know you can't guarantee that. You know, say, oh, I have to win, I have to win. No, but you must want to win beyond anything. And and that that's the way I played football. Do you know, and I was obsessed with uh, making sure that I dominated whoever I played against. You know, it's with the systems and the way things changed nowadays. You know, it was always four four two, four four two. Uh, you know, occasionally a team might go to a three, but you always knew who you were up against on the Saturday, and and I'd have a mental picture of him in my head for days before I played, and I just have to dominate this individual, whoever it is, you know. And then you go into the game, and then you know, and as long as I felt as though I'd done my job and dominated the player to the to what I believed was I won that battle. You know, and if you've got seven, eight, nine players in your team that are doing the same, you'll win games of football. That's how I always saw it. That's genetic as well, isn't it? How many sons have you got? Have you just got the one? Just one. So that so your lad who I met first when he was a little lad, yeah. um, and we were doing a um, my my son came down as well, and there was like a bit of a shoot that they were doing for some TV program. And what struck me straight away when I saw your lad then, I've met him since, mm. was that he was like a mini you. Mm. He looked like you physically, had square shoulders. Mm. And when it came to taking a penalty shootout that my lad was involved in, your Aaron went, I want to take one, I want to take one. He was mm. like, and he, he dominated it. Mm. Is that, I feel like that's genetic. You think that's genetic um, come from your dad as well? I think, yeah, there's nature and there's nurture. And I think when when the two collide perfectly and you have a, a burning desire to win and be the best that you can, then you, you, you know, you, you're top sportsman at whatever level, you know, whoever they were. You know, you look at Djokovic, who's just won, you know, as an analogy with you with tennis, um, you know, the talent is matched by the incredible desire, almost with demons inside him, you know, to have to be the best. And when them worlds collide, you get something really special. You know, um, I think I had the desire there to, to, to be the best. And, you know, my ability was what I had, but my checkered football career and the way I lived my life away from football curtailed where I actually could have could have gone to. On, on many, many fronts, I massively overachieved in my career. And then on, me- and on so many levels, I underachieved, you know, because of the... The, the adversity and the mountains I had to climb through my childhood to actually carry on playing football and just get through, you know, is... I acknowledge that now when I look back on it. But when then when I think when I actually got to Blackburn at 21 and they paid half a million pounds for me as the the best young centre-after in the lower leagues, that was, you know, I was supposed to be the next Kevin Moran who was coming to the end of his career. When I look back and I think how I blew that 
and how I wasted them opportunities with the way I, I lived my life. Not when I played football, not when I trained. I trained and I my football was just obsessed, but away from it, I didn't live right, you know, and um, and I paid the price for that. And it's you know, it's lovely when Joe says in his in his autobiography, Andy Morrison should have played fifty times for his country. It's nice to hear that. But the flip side of it is it's it hurts, you know, because I I came up short, you know, and in, in where I should have done and what I should have achieved. I'm going to, I've deliberately left the city part of this story till the end because I've got Emily with me who's going to chip in a few questions as well. So without touching on that specifically, I do want to touch on you mentioned demons mm-hmm. and obviously people know about that, the fact mm-hmm. that you had anger management issues mm-hmm. and um, you know I think you were, you, you had, well I, I'm not going to tell your story, you had anger, where did that come from? Does that, does that come from something that happened in your life there, and how bad was it? Yeah, there's, there's incidents that happen through your childhood, you know, and, and I spoke about them. I'm not going to speak about them now. I spoke about them in my book. And the reason I spoke about them openly in my book was to try and get a bit of closure and also for people to understand that there's a reason why you did the things you did, you know, and the, the extreme violence. And, you know, I, I take no pride whatsoever in saying that. You know, I had three grievous bodily harm charges against me, you know, that I was found not guilty on on two of them and one of them never got to court, you know, and there's something that was spread inside of me that came out very dark and um, demonic, you know, in, in the way I, I behaved and, and, um, and that's, I understand that that's a part of things that happened throughout my life that you kind of like cement down, you put to bed, you don't look at them, and then they come out, you know, in the throes of alcohol at sort of two o'clock in the morning, and, you know, and then you, then you can't not act on it. You know, you're, what you carry out is, is barbaric, and then you don't remember it the next day until somebody actually says you did this or you did that, you know. So um, that was something I looked at um, when I come to the city, and how ironic that I'm 20 years sober today. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, the 28th of uh, January 99, 6pm was my last drink of alcohol. Uh, so 20 years without any of the loopy juice. I'm still loopy, like, but <laughs> I'm 20 years without the juice. So, yeah, and, um, and you know, I, I, it, listen, it's, it's so humbling when even what you've said tonight, and, I, and I'm in the presence of the City fans, and they say the part that I played, but... Manchester City, as a football club, and the fans, they'll, they'll never know what a part they played in my life and how I my life changed. They'll never, you know, they'll never understand how the affection that I felt when I come to the club and the way they just took me in and, you know, and sang my name and all that and how that made me, my self-worth to actually go then and and have to change my life around, you know? And, and I think from January onwards, you know, when I never picked a drink up and I haven't picked a drink up to this day, I think the reward for me personally was to walk up the steps at Wembley. Um, but yeah, you know, of course I did it for myself and I had to change my life. But the Manchester City as a football club and the fans played a huge part in, in how I actually turned my life around. You said you don't want to delve into that. So I'm going to ask you one other question, um, which comes from the fact that ironically last night, I watched a documentary, it was the uh, it was Holocaust Day, mm. and it was a documentary, I don't know if you saw it, of survivors um, of the Holocaust, and they'd been holding in um, stuff, some of these people anyway, uh, since they'd been small children, the things mm. that they'd witnessed, and they found it very difficult to let that out and to mm. express things. Mm-hmm. So my question to you really is, was the stuff then that was being held in you, and is there still stuff that is being held in you, that, that, and that's the reason why you went, went down that road in the first place? Um, yeah, there, there was. There was incidents, like and I say, and uh, you know, I spoke about it in my book. And I don't want you to go somewhere you don't want to go. No, and I've, I've had emails from people who have actually said that by me actually talking about things, how it had changed their life around and given them the courage to actually go and get help and um, therapy for what happened to them in their childhood. And one of the, you know, one of the reasons I, I, I actually was as open as I was, I wanted that, you know, I wanted people to know that, you know, uh, there's, there's men tonight as we're sat here and having a chat and a tea or they're sat on a, you know, a bunk bed 
and they're in a cell and they have no idea why they're there. They think they're just violent or they're drunks, you know. There's a there's a a lifetime of of abuse and adversity and pain that they've gone through, which they're not even aware of. They just think that they're this, you know, but it's not. It's uh, I know it's a lot deeper than that and um, and by sharing it in the book and talking about it, I, I hope that it would affect, and, it, and without a shadow of doubt it has, you know, even tonight I had a, a lovely message on Twitter when I spoke about being 20 years without a drink and a lovely message from somebody who was a City fan actually said how after reading my book it changed his life, you know, and that means so much to me because if I could, you know, make a difference in one person's life it was worth writing the book. Tell us the name of the book. The good, the mad, and the ugly, you know, and I think that sums up my life really. Do you know, um, um, because there has been so many good things, and you know, and there's been some mad things, and there's been some ugly things, and um, you know, and I, I, I think I, I wrote the book. I'm sure it was maybe nine years ago now. I'm not for sure, but you know, people always say to me because there's a footballer who actually plays for City who's who's writing a book now, and um, and he rang me and asked me. How did I feel? You know, would I have changed anything? And of course, I look at things differently now. Um, sort of nearly a decade down the line, and would I have been as open as I I was at the time? Maybe not, but I had to be, you know, truthful to myself, and I had to say how I felt at that time, because if you're not being who you are, then you're not being, you know, you're not being genuine and. Uh, and, you know, and it's so important to me to be authentic and real and, and, and be who I am um, and not be guarded, you know, because um, I think that's what I try to get across in the book. And I have absolutely no regrets in the way, it, you know, the way it was wrote. And, and, you know, a good friend of mine from City, you know, was the ghostwriter and, uh, and uh, yeah, really pleased with exactly, like I say, it's worth everything that uh, I got that message tonight. The Andy Morrison I see sitting before me and that I've known for years now, but certainly in the last 10 years is a very open and mm-hmm. and, and very black and white type of person. Um, so I think you've achieved what you wanted to achieve or it feels to me as if you've achieved what you wanted to achieve. So if I ask you for, and this might lead us into the city section, I don't know, but for the lowest point and the highest point in your life, um, what, what are they? The lowest point was probably 20 years ago today, you know, when I'd gone away for three days, I was suspended for the Stoke game, and I, I just, I, I used to binge drink, you know, and that worked well with my football, you know, if I could see an opportunity where I was suspended or an out of season or whatever, and I can just see like a gap of three or four days, then I can just get oblivion for three or four days, I can just go on it and just release myself, like, you know, from the the pain that I would feel emotionally, mentally, that would just build on me. Pressure of football as well, and life. And then I would just escape. And, um, you know, I'd come into City and was doing really well and everything was great. And then I had this opportunity and then I went to Inverness, headed north and just got into absolute chaos, you know, in fighting in, in nightclubs and arrested. And um, and then I should have been back in on Monday. I didn't get back on the Monday. And I can remember Roy Bailey ringing me and saying, oh, you're in trouble. When you get back in, like you know, you better have. And then I walked into Joe's office, and you know that morning when I woke up on the, I think it was the Monday morning. That was my lowest point, where I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. I just fed up with just you know the drink didn't work anymore. I was ending up just sat on my own in a pub, you know at midnight, nobody near me, just with a drink and just in tears, you know, not knowing why I was in so much pain. And um, and I, you know, the following morning I had three choices really. It was get help, uh, you know, and open up to the club and say how things were. Go back on the drink, which I didn't want to, or take my life. And that's that's how blunt it was, you know. I was up in the north of Scotland on the farm where where I grew up, and I knew where the gun was. There's a gun in the in in the shed. I knew where it was, and I had this huge voice in my head, just. You know, just take your life, and um, that was the low point. And I got into the car, and I drove for eight hours all the way back to still living over in Worksop. Uh, no radio or nothing for eight hours, just me in my own head. And then, you know, I made a decision there, and then, 
that I, I needed to do something and the seed had been planted many years before you know countless times where I'd ended up in courts and and people would say you know you might just have a problem with drink you know you might need to look at this and or certain ways you know and, and the, so the seed had been planted and I, and I knew and I went in and seen Joe the next day and and I always talk about Joe and Willie the part they played and you know I'd been in that position 20 times in my career where I'm in front of the manager I'm in front of the board of directors I'm in front of the club doctor I'm in front of the club psychologist whatever saying like I'm sorry I promise you I won't do this again I promise you I'll, I'll, I'll see the and it was all it, it was meant at the time um, and it was always that and I said to Joe like I said look I've let you down I'm sorry and, you know I won't let the club down I won't let you down I won't let the lads down and, and Joe just flipped it straight on his head and he said well what about you and I like what do you mean he said well what about you and your quality of life he said don't worry about me this is Joe, he said, because people will always let me down. They've always let me down, footballers, you know, and I'll, they'll, I'm sure they'll let me down in the future. But what about you and what you should be achieving and what you quality life you should have? Surely it's, this is not your, what you, you wanted or what you deserve. And it was the first time anyone had actually spoke to me in that term because it was always, right, you're getting two weeks' wages, right, you're out of the team, right, you're this, you'll be in for extra training, bang, 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 you know. And I would take that gladly. Fantastic, thanks. As long as I don't get sacked, you know, as long as you keep me being, you know, if football's a very strange industry because you're a commodity, you're worth something. You know, I'd have been sacked 10 times at Blackpool um, by Sam Allardyce if I wasn't worth half a million that they sold me for in the summer. I'd have been gone, you know, with the, with the, the way I behaved there. And um, so you're always a piece of meat, like, you know, and, and Joe turned it round and I played a big part, you know, and, uh, and like I say, I went away that day. I said to Joe, look, I know what I need to do. And I went and I, you know, went to Alcoholics Anonymous on the, um, the night after and I've not picked a drink up since. I'm very proud of the Andrew. Mm. What's the high point? The high point football-wise has to be Wembley, you know, because of the sacrifices and the pain that I'd gone through and the, and the just complete, you know, underachieving throughout my career, nothing to look back on and you know, no promotions and you know, the old playoff and just continually underachieving with the talent that I was given. Um, because, you know, you speak to Joe, you speak to Sam Allardyce, you speak to Brian Horton and they'll say behind the, you know, the, the brute strength was a gifted footballer who had, inc- who had an unbelievable right peg and was talented you and had a good touch. You could could you? pass and could play. <laughs> you know, so um, the, you know, the just underachieving with what I should have had and where I should have gone in my career and and then you make it wasn't a sacrifice because I didn't have a choice do you know I, I had to stop I had to stop drinking I had to take a different direction in my life and and then we went on a fantastic run and I was a captain and the, you know then for those last sort of six to eight weeks we were sold out every week it was just a it was just a building up of of, of energy around the place and a coming together of the you know the board of directors at the time and the fans and the players everybody seemed to come in together and get in the boat together like you know because it had been so dissected and split the club for I don't know how long you know a lot longer than me you know I only came you know I came in when after you know back-to-back relegations I think it was and 46 players you know there was three different changing rooms of players that you know and the, the thing was that the, the changing room that had the players who were names you know, we're earning three times what the players were who were actually playing in the first team. Do you know, that's how how it got com- completely um, in such a mess at the club at the time. And, um, and you know, the, the, the fans had had that for many years and then all of a sudden, you know, we got a little bit of energy and we got a bit going forward motion and, and it grew from that, you know, and without jumping too far ahead, you know, that energy and that togetherness created the... the the vehicle really to go again and get promoted the following season you know back-to-back promotions with that group who at one point were mid-table in the old first division is staggering but that shows what can be achieved when when everybody you know starts singing off the same sheet because we did you know and um, the highlight obviously was Wembley um, and just lifting the trophy you know with the emotions that went around that game as well which is it's it's staggering, you know. I've done it as a player. I've done it as a fan. 
in 2012, you know, so I've seen, I've seen it on two levels, but to actually be there and sitting and thinking you've blown it, you've lost it, you know, it's gone. And the way it was turned around, you know, and I always, whenever I go to the supporters branches, I always say it's almost like somebody upstairs was looking down and saying, when it went 2-0, it was like, right, that's enough. City have had enough pain now. Like, now we're going to turn things around. And and from that moment, you know, when Dickie scored, and then that was it. And the club has just continually grown for 20 years. Of course, the investment has been huge from Abu Dhabi, and, you know, that that's changed the dynamics of the club. But the club are always going to get back to the Premier League. It might have taken a little bit longer if we hadn't done that. It would have took a lot longer. You look at, you know, I... I I was staggered that Leeds 15 years out of the Premier League, a club that size. Sheffield Wednesday, Nottingham Forest, these clubs, you know, and, and you know, you don't know where we could have gone because I know things were very, very tight and, you know, I'm sure Nicky Weaver and Dickoff, Goater and the best players would have been moved on. Je um, Jeff Whitley was just really, Michael Brown were coming into form at that period and they would have all been moved on and then the players that were younger players like your Gary Masons and and um, the two brothers, the twins, you know, Fentons. I'm sure they would have had to have been forced into the team and it would have been stuck for a period. But, you know, a club with the history and the following that City have, I believe they would have always got back to the Premier League eventually. So, you know, that day was that day was really special for me and, um, and to, to have enjoyed it sober as well, you know, and, and experienced. I was the last, me and Chappie were the last two to leave the changing room and I helped them carry some of the stuff out the kit out from the changing room and I just remember sat there because Chappie played a huge part in me coming to the club and the two of us just felt like you know mission accomplished you know that's what I came in here for was to get this club out of this league you know and we'd done it and of course I get this club I don't mean it like that you know yeah, I don't mean it like that there's so many so many good things in place at the time you know when I was part of a jigsaw I was a part that was missing the missing part in the jigsaw but you know the the coaches, the players, the energy, the the um, the manager. There were so many good things in place, and they just missed this nutter madman who didn't have any respect for anyone or anything, who just came in and said, "Right, come on, let's just have it." And the players followed that, and um, and we went, uh, you know, we went on a great run. Brought Mark Kennedy in the next year, who had then had his. Best season, you know, Mark will still say now that's probably his, one of his most enjoyed, even away to Liverpool. One of his, you know, remember the goal he scored at Bolton? When we just went on that run and everything just seemed to click, didn't it? Celebration at Blackburn. Oh, it was magical, wasn't it? You know, it was uh, obviously my knee had gone then. So I missed, um, I think I played the first 16 games and then uh, my knee went. So I had to sit back and watch it, which was, was painful, you know, not being able to be involved in it, but also, you know, so delighted because I know what it meant to so many people like Richard Edgewood you know who come up through the schoolboy ranks and all that and just an absolute city fanatic and for him to have actually gone back to back relegations and then get the club back I remember how proud he was you know but not just as a player but as a fan and what it meant to him at that time you know and the characters of that period you know Jared Vikins and Dickoff and Goater and even Danny Teato just fantastic just great people, you know, and when I think back to them, I always smile because I can see his smiles, Kevin Horlock, on their faces, you know, because the camaraderie and the crack and the energy that we, we had was so strong, the togetherness, that, um, you know, towards the end of that season, no matter who we played, we thought we'd beat them. You know, we, we, I think Blackburn came, I played in that game, I think we beat them maybe 3-0. And then we went to Burnley and won by six, and it just grew. And then there was a belief came along that we we were as good as any of the teams in this league. You know, we can we can really go and keep going, and and we did. And, uh, and the Blackburn day was magic, but not the same as uh, the ninety nine game. I've got to tell you that as a fan um, and and as a journalist, I've been very lucky because. I got Vincent Company's a captain's armband in 2012. I got Fernandinho's shirt last year. And I've, I've known a lot of players from different eras. I wrote Colin Bell's book. So I've been very lucky to be involved in lots of different eras. And there'll be people listening to this who are new fans. And they're just as welcome to be to the fan base. But I hope that all those fans and the club never forget the era that you played in. And of all of the things that I've been involved in at, at the club... Uh, and this wasn't a club event, but one of the things I was most proud of doing 
I don't know if you remember this night, but we did a night for the Variety Club of Great Britain, mm-hmm. which was to remember the heroes of 99. And you were all there, the whole lot of you. Tony Pulis was there, the, the Gillingham manager, Mark Holsey, the referee, who added the extra minutes on and everything. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the most magnificent nights of my life mm-hmm. to stand there, to interview you guys, and to host that in front of, I don't know, three, 400 fans in the, the Palace uh, Hotel in Manchester meant the world to me and I, I never want City fans to forget you guys and the role that you've played. I don't think they will. You know, I, I, when I'm with fans and we talk about uh, the Aguero goal, you know, the FA Cup and they smile the glint in their eye and then, you know, I've got the utmost respect for the period from them back to us. But it's almost like a missing period, you know, where people can't really remember too much. You know, you think of some of the names, Fowler, McManaman and Rubinio, you know, these players that play for us, you think, well, what was that period like? But you go back to 99 and everyone smiles and they just have this glow on their face, like, and this warmth and, and they're just like, yeah, do you know what? Them times, they were magical, them times. It's a different period, you know, in the, a different area now in the club's history. And it's it's fantastic now, but... Like you say, the fact that the fans remember that so fondly, and I just think you know that's the strength of of Manchester City and their their fans, you know, because it's that black humour that they had that had to bring them through, you know, because not only were we struggling, the arch enemy were just ripping it up. So to be a City fan would have been so tough through that period and have to keep walking out the door and stick your chest out, you know, and go, well, we're going to go again. We're going to go again, like the fans who came up to me when I was main captain in the car park behind the Kipaks, you know, and they knew who I was, and but six lads walked up, and they were all the same size as me, big lads, like, you know, meatheads with dunk, big jackets on and all that, and one of them said, Andy Morrison, isn't it? And I said, yeah, he said, just be main captain, haven't you? And I said, yeah, and he said, get it sorted out. And I said, I will. I said, we will. And they just walked off, and what I appreciated at that point was this is their football club. You know, we just draw nil-nil the week before with Gillingham at home or something, you know? And they have to go back and then you've seen what United were doing at the time and they go into work, and but it's their football club, it's their life, it's their love. And they got to stick by it and go again. And the rewards for that loyalty is what we get now, you know? And it's beyond what we ever imagined we'd get. You know, yeah, we might win a cup. We'll, we'll stay in the Premier League. We might push for a Champions League or a top. But where we are now... It's just another level whatsoever, and that's the reward for me for what they had to go through. You know, and through adversity and pain, if you can stick together, monumental things can be achieved. And and look at look at where we are now. You know, it's uh, it's beyond what any of us could ever could ever dreamt of. I'm sure for you, you know, where we are now. You know, and and embrace it and love it and enjoy it. You know, and um, treasure it because. Uh, because, we do. <laughs> yeah, and, and rightly so, rightly so, because um, you know, nobody wants to give Manchester City any praise, nobody wants to put them up on the pedestals that they should be on, but that's a generation thing, and that generation is changing. You know, when you start to go now to, to Asia, and you go to America, and you'll be seeing more and more, you know, youngsters are coming through. We're creating that as we go forward over the next 10, 15, 20 years. They're coming through now, do you know? And, and in 20 years' time, when we've won 10 titles and we've won two European Champions Leagues, you know, it'll be there, do you know? Because uh, young kids want to wear a Guero shirt, you know, they want to wear David Silva, you know, because we're winning. And that creates this energy and, you know, the, the club's going in the right direction. You did right. I mean, I've asked all the questions now that I wanted to ask of you and you've been superb to, to, to answer them as fully as you have. Emily's been sitting here listening to all this. Um, we did put a tweet out the other day saying, does anybody want to ask Andy a question? So what have you got for us, Emily? This is your bit now. Um, I just want to say, and I'm not blowing smoke because you sat there, but um, I obviously had a season ticket back from like 95, 96 Um, and those days were dismal they were awful and me and my brother would go together to main mode and we'd just expect us to get beat and we'd just Mm. turn up and the camaraderie between the stands with the North Stand Gives a Song Kipax, Platte Lane that kind of humour kept us going when we were watching nothing on the pitch Mm. 
I think one of my highlights was uh, us beating Swindon Town 6-0 and singing There's Only One Barry Conlon <laughs> uh, back then. And then obviously I remember the game when you came in. Um, it was Colchester at home right. yeah. and we won 2-1. I scored the winner. You scored the bullet header. <laughs> and I just remember looking at my brother and saying, who is this guy? Because he looks like he should be a rugby player. Mm. You completely changed everything. Your attitude on the pitch was head and shoulders above anything that we'd seen. You came in like a, a Tasmanian devil, like a mm. whirlwind. And from that point onwards, moving forward, everything changed. And you were the catalyst for that. So mm, I want to thank you because thank you. You, you changed yeah. everything from that point. So I'm not blowing smoke, but oh, it's the truth you. because. It means a lot. Thank you. So obviously that's what I've said there about the um, the bullet header, and you were man of the match as well for that game. But just how bad a shape were the club in at that point when you came in? I wasn't. I wasn't aware in any way that things were bad. Only what was in the press, and 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 uh, you know an apathy around the place of uh, a bit of negativity because of where they were, rightly so. Um, but you know. I had come from Huddersfield and you know I was captain at Huddersfield and, we, and people forget that we were I think we were second top in the championship at that time we were doing really well but you know, I'd fallen out with the manager so I come into City but you know, there's 28,000 at the first game and, and immediately I realised there's something I've just got to keep my head down and do things right because there's something special here do you know and if I needed to know was on the Monday driving into to training after I'd scored the winner and Mark and Lard on Radio 2 or or whatever the sport was then they were, they were speaking and they said they're massive City fans and they were saying we've sorted everything out at City he said we've got a doorman in this is, <laughs> they said we've got a doorman in I said and all he's going to do is just bash people this is the way we're going to get out of the league and I, was, and I was driving into training and I heard that and I just thought do you know what? This is a this is a op- unbelievable opportunity. You know because I'm at Manchester City now, and um, and the history of the club. You know was um, so I never felt that uh, Willie Donaghy would make us tra- uh, warm up at the school before a game, and the reason behind that was because of the young lads and the nervousness and because they wanted to do well. They didn't want to let the fans down. Do you know, but their responsibility put onto their shoulders was to drag this club out of that league. And them young boys, you know, who it was a big ask of them, mm. week in week out, with that expectations, and you know, when um, he really didn't want them to come back in frightened or or intimidated by the uh, anything that was said. So we were just refreshed when we come onto the pitch from the school, and uh, so I wasn't really aware of what was going on behind the scenes. Only what the press would speak about and how they tried to, you know, tried to paint a picture of of a club in turmoil. But we didn't feel that in the changing room. We we were a really tight group, you know. When Willie and uh, Asa Hartford and Chappie and you know Joe Royal, they, they made sure that anything that anything that was negative around the place, anything player that wasn't buying into how they wanted to do it, you know, they were moved out and they didn't train with us, you know. So we had a really strong group. Um, Mac and Lad had their season ticket next to me, by the way, in the kickbacks. <laughs> um, did you play the Millwall game at home? And if you did, what was the atmosphere like? Because that was pretty terrifying as a, as a City fan being in that atmosphere. You're there. talking about the Millwall game at Millwall? At City. At City. When we won 3-0. I was injured, and funny how it, I remember this, and I think Tony Vaughan came off after about 15 minutes, and it was 0-0, and I went on uh, substitution at, after 15 minutes, and we went on, and we won the game 3-0, then I stayed in the team, like, you know, when... I think when I'd, I'd been suspended for a game or I was injured for a game and they won the game so Joe kept the same team and to, but he did say to me I'll get you back in and um, but I think Tony came off injured and uh, but yeah it was I don't remember anything apart from the game apart from winning it and, and knowing that we were we were very good on the day. So you can't remember what was going on on the terraces then with all like the, the, the fighting and, and Millwall, nothing. nothing. So you can just tunnel vision and completely... You don't, you don't, you just don't see it. You know, people say about, you know, what do you remember about the, the playoff final? I don't remember anything apart from walking down the tunnel and then when you walk onto the pitch, you know, you're not looking for family or nothing. You're just so centred 
that when the whistle goes, you just go into what you've done all your life, you know, just dominate Carlos Abba and Rob Taylor, just dominate the pair. And I dominated them and I battered the pair of them for 67 minutes until I went off the pitch. They never got a kick and then they scored one goal each when I wasn't on. <laughs> that is actually one of my questions. Um, before that, though, Saturday the 15th of August 1999, this is one of the most popular questions, by the way, almost 20 years ago, City played Fulham at the Cottage... It was after it, wasn't it, that? Yeah, it's after it, sorry. Uh, Nil-nil. Second yellow card for an altercation with a certain Mr Stan Collymore. And Joe Ryle allegedly said that you were sent off for sticking your tongue down another player's throat and that you've got a tongue like red rum. What actually happened? We've all seen the picture, haven't we? How many times do people come up to you and shake your hand for what you did to him? (laughs) It was, um, to be perfectly honest with you, and again, not blowing smoke at myself, but I dominated San Colombo that day. It never got a kick. And um, I was right at the top of my game at that time. I got really fit. You know, we'd had a pre-season. Um, and my gesture was, I've got you licked. But the... the So he, he's gone, come back at me and said, what? And I should stuck my tongue out. I've got you licked. I said, I've got too much for you. And um, the referee pulled his yellow card out to book me. And as he went to write it down, he's seen that number five Morrison's already on there. So he has the red card made, you know. And we know we knew at the time and said to us afterwards, you know, that he he didn't realise. He wanted to just yellow card for you, yellow card for you, move on. But he didn't realise I'd been booked earlier in the game. So um, it was one of those situations where, you know, you go to the tunnel and watch the game and you pray when you've been sent off and you're the captain, you pray that, that they don't lose because you've let the team down. And um, we didn't. We drew it nil nil. And if I remember, Sean Golter had an unbelievable chance with about two or three minutes to go at far post. Um, and but I was happy because we didn't lose the game. But um, obviously the questions were asked afterwards about the incident, and you know, still, still to today, the same questions are asked. You know, and I, I've never stuck my tongue down his throat for sure. <laughs> but I did make a licking gesture just to say, I've got your lick, lad. I've got too much for you. Did and he on ever, the day I did. Did he say anything to you after it? Did he ever... No, I know I've seen him. I've seen him at City games and, you know, just shook his hand and we just laugh, have a good laugh about it, like, you know. Although he was quite derogatory in his uh, autobiography about me and another couple of players, like, you know, which uh, I'm, I'm sure he regrets saying now in hindsight. Um, when Robert Taylor scored that goal in the 86th minute, how did you feel at that point? And what was said during the prep to take the penalties? When he scored the second, I did the so deflated. I can't tell you, you know, I turned around and looked at the steps because from a selfish point of view, all I dreamt about in the week leading up to the game was walking up the steps, you know, just mentally visualising me picking the trophy up and holding it up to the City fans, you know. So you're thinking another year, you know, in that league, you're not going to get your new contract, the bonuses for promotion, you're not going to get. And, you know, there's going to be a massive, you know, anti-climax to the season. And, um, you know, but I remember Willie Donaghy standing up and going down pitch side and just keep driving the team on, you know, very philosophical approach to life and believing that when things are meant to be, they'll be. And, of course, Kevin, you know, drills one in. And as Kev always wants me to mention, that he did score at Wembley and he didn't miss his penalty. So just there again, just get that in for Kev. <laughs> you know, he always reminds me of that as well. <laughs> Dickie got the goal, didn't he, and missed his penalty. But Paul gets uh, rightly gets you know all the credit, but Kev just always winks and says, don't forget I got one as well. Um, and and yeah, you know once once we got to penalties, they were shot completely shot to bits you know I think they had seven centre halves on the pitch going into extra time so they were never going to score it was always going to be us because they just took off both strikers and put centre halves on to, to kill the game and um, you know it was going to go to penalties and it was just a surreal feeling you know Willie used to do a lot of work with us about being centred and staying in the moment and, and being aware of your body and feeling your feet on the floor and that was the message really going into the penalties was you know just just you know, be comfy in yourself, just be focused and, and what will be will be and there was a lot of freedom, you know, and and yeah, it was uh it was it was just a remarkable turnaround. And um yeah, you know, I could talk about it all day, really, because it was such a 
incredible event. It was just the emotions around the way it was done. You know, it's the the cruelest way to be 2-0 and the devastation. You know, you see the, the, the highlights of it now. You see the fans just... You see women and kids and men in tears. And we were all crying. Everybody's just completely... And then the, 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 the flip and the turnaround to what it did to the Gillingham fans and how those Gillingham players... And, you know, and I, I always have the utmost respect for Tony Pullis because the following season they were promoted as champions. That's how good a manager he was. You know, to actually be able to pick up that group and go again was... Uh, testament to just how good he, he actually was and is and um, you know but yeah I can remember the banter on the side because I knew a couple of lads Kenny Brown and Mark Saunders who actually played for them and when they were 2-0 you know they were taunting us across the thing and then when it went to 2 all, and we were just giving you know the message back to them and they were heads and hands they'd gone completely gone it was only it was written wasn't it it was just written yeah. you know you couldn't you couldn't make it up. You know, going go into the game when you're thinking of the outcomes of how things could happen, what could happen, you know, will it be a referee's decision? Will it be a magical goal? Will we win it comfy? Nobody could ever have envisaged how it went about. Be two nil down going into ninety minutes and we're out and to turn it around and you know, incredible. It's amazing the parallels with ninety three twenty really, isn't it, with Aguero. I walked down <laughs> into the concourse at Wembley that day after uh, Taylor had scored that goal and I looked at my brother and I said I don't know how much more I can take because I was in college it was an absolute nightmare with United fans yep. Yep. they were taunting us constantly and it was just absolutely horrific and I was in tears and I was like I am going to get bullied rotten going back into college how, what, where do we go from here wow. but it's all we ever did we went home and away and it's all we ever knew mm -hmm. so then obviously bang the Hallock goal, and then it was like everybody just rushed to the stairs to go straight back up. And then yeah. in the pandemonium of being in the staircase in this big crush with grown men crying around you, then the Dickov moment happened and it was just absolutely surreal. We're and back. Back to the seat and <laughs> yeah. here we go. <laughs> I'm not saying I gave up hope, but no. a lot of people did actually go home that day and then only found out on the way home. It was just the it was city a fans you speak to now and the smiles on their face oh. and everybody knows where they were. You know, everyone knows I would say everyone knows where they were when Elvis died. Everybody every city fan knows where they were on that day. I was in the pub and so and so so and so. I was watching it with my uncle and you know, or I was at the game and everyone it's so clear in their head that day. And uh yeah, it's great listening to the listening to the fans when, when they start going on about it because they're right back into it like you were then. You know, talking about the emotions around it and how they were devastated and how they were, you know, how it was flipped around. And you were talking about being taught. I used to get taunted as a city captain by United fans who lived nearby me. You know, I can remember one day getting into my car and and uh, a friend of mine, uh, Tom, who's, who's a United fan, a great lad in every aspect of his life, apart from football, where he was a United fan, just deluded, like, you know. And uh, and he stopped outside the house, wound his window down as he was driving out and went, oh, I see you got Macclesfield today. You must remember the old days when you played Stockport in your derbies. Ha, 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 and drove off, do you know? And um, and I always say, I remember, with sat with Aaron when we went 4-1 up against United, away from home in the 6-1. And I had my text messages all written out, ready to go, you know, like a group of all the United fans and 4-1. I remember 4-1, they were down to 10 men with a, on about, because we got two very, very late goals, didn't we? And I remember Aaron saying to me, don't send it, Dad, not yet. Don't send it, it's too risky. I said, Aaron, we're 4-1 up. I said, there's 88 minutes gone. He said, no, don't do it. You're, you're 10 feet. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was 6-1, wasn't it? And I just, just waiting. And I waited years and years to be able to get... You know, and I'm sure it was exactly the same for you. Yeah. Just what you know, them them moments and looking where we are now. Do you know? So surreal. Yeah. The, so, the only uh, thing I can add to that is I was sat in the stand with my son. I wasn't a journalist in those days, and my son said to me, two 0 down as we moved into stoppage time. Um, are we going to stay being a City fan, Dad? And I said, yes, we are absolutely <laughs> going to stay being a City fan. Nothing changes. And they said, shall we go? I said, no, we're not going. We're staying until the end. <laughs> and I thought that was the best decision. That's what being a City fan yeah. is all about, isn't it? Did you, eh? did you remember the, the players and the staff when we went to the City end and we all got on our knees? Yeah. And we all... Bowed. Bowing down. Yeah, you know, that was, uh, it was suggested by me and Edgy. 
you know, let, let's just make a gesture to them, you know, because they've stopped by us, like, you know, and they worship us, but we worship them, you know, for what they've given us and what you've just been through as well. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think the following season, you know, again, it was paid back, you know, what, what had been given by the fans because the players, you know, the, the like I say, the back-to-back -back promotions were just an incredible achievement at that time, you know, with it. Money starting to come in, a lot of rich clubs, you know, even in the championship, you know, City weren't one of them. And, um, you know, for us to go through the way we did, again, I think that again was David Bernstein and the board of directors down, the players, the manager, the fans, everyone in this together. And it's amazing what you can achieve when you get that kind of energy. I've only got a couple more questions. Um, who would be your unsung hero during your time at City? Um some hero God, what a good question. Willie Donaghy, without a shadow of doubt, yeah. Willie Donaghy for, for what he did for me personally and what you know, you speak to Sean Goater now, you speak to Paul Dickoff, Nicky Weaver, and they'll all smile when you mention Willie and what he actually impact he had on us as players, not just as players, but as men. You know, the demands he put on you. He was so much about, you know, if you if you've got fantastic qualities as a human being and a man that'll come through on the pitch you know so he was as much for that as the football and uh, yeah definitely for me Willie Who would be your best centre half that you've ever seen in a City shirt apart from music cartoons um, oh, Dunn Dun had a fantastic period you know Richard Dunn had an incredible period where you know he player of the year year after year after year I think you know, and, and played many, many games, um, you know, and I know I actually played with him, so I know how good he was, but it has to be Vinny, you know, um, pardon the pun, I've been in his company on a few occasions, and, and an incredibly humble man, and, and, you know, an ambassador for the club, the way he carries himself, you know, still on a match day when myself, Richard, and some of the older boys who are working on the club, you know, Vinny will come out of the group and come across and shake all our hands and say hello, you know, he just, he's just an incredible human being, you know, and it's not just his football talent, but, you know, as, as, a, as a human, as a man, you know, the way he carries himself and what I know he's personally gone through with his injuries, you know, and the heartache and the depths he's been taken to with injuries and actually come back is remarkable. You know, I thought on a few occasions over the years, like, wow, you can't come back again from that. And, and he does, you know, and um, so for me, he's been the outstanding centre-half in my time at the club I'm sure before that Colin Hendry and Watson and you know and um, tell me the name of Mike Doyle Mike maybe Doyle, that's yeah. one I was thinking of yeah. you know these people are etched in the history of the club but from when I came in in 99 through from when I've been watching them it's Vinny without a shadow of a doubt you know when you score that goal against United and the 1-0 you know you see his, his face and his body language and you see what it meant to him do you know and and um and just he's just just been an absolute credit to himself and the club. I named my eldest son after him. That's how much he means to me. That's it. how much he means. <laughs> and the last question is: Tell us your favourite dressing room story about during your time at City. Give us some gossip. I've got loads, you know, to be <laughs> honest. But I'll 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 go back to my very first day and excuse the language. And um, when I walked into City and I had my soap bag and I just arrived from Huddersfield and silk bag, soap, soap, soap bag. So I walked right in my now. soap bag and my boots and all that, and I just walked into the changing room and the lads were there and they were all kind of looked up and and um, Chappy spot me in and said, "Oh, this is Andy Morrison. We just come across from Huddersfield." And Kevin Horlock looked at me and he went. Is it that desperate that we've had to bring him in? <laughs> <laughs> and that broke the ice, you know. And that was Kev, like, you know, and uh, and I just smiled and laughed and I always remind him. And um that, that that was my first thing the first thing said to me when I walked in. But yeah, there's been uh, there's been many, but the most of the stories are best off left in the change room, I think. <laughs> well Andy, uh, I've got to tell you that I've done a lot of these interviews down the years, and I've done one with you before, uh, but truly that is one of the best interviews that I've ever enjoyed in the company of somebody, and you've been so open and so honest and so lovely. So thank you for sharing your thank story you with us. Me. I hope more and more people share this and, and, and give us five-star ratings and everything, because this is one that really deserves 
to go viral if there is such a thing because you're such a genuine person with a proper heartfelt story that everybody can relate to. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. Uh, we'll do another podcast next week and uh, there'll be another one hopefully like the one with Andy. Well, it won't be as good, I'm sure, <laughs> as the one with Andy, uh, but with uh, other ex-City players and heroes in the future. So thanks very much for subscribing and we'll see you next time. 